Welcome to Growth Chats, where we hold inspiring conversations with high-performing individuals on entrepreneurship, investing, work, and life. I'm your host, Max Burke. On today's show, we have a very special guest, Cameron Reed. Cam is a software engineer at Oracle, a budding entrepreneur in the tech space, and an extremely close friend of mine who has some really interesting perspectives on technology, life, and the intersection of the two in the future. Cam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Of course. Yeah, Cam, there, there are a lot of topics that I'm really excited to dive into today, but I wanted to start with your thought process on your decision to choose software engineering in college and the advice you would give to other young people in college who are facing a similar college major decision. Definitely. So it's funny because, um, you know, one of my friends recently has, he was talking to his girlfriend's little brother who is trying to decide on all that kind of stuff. So we were having the exact same conversation. Um, and I said pretty much to him, there's no other way to go than software engineering right now, in my opinion. Um, because if you want to be really successful in life, like you're going to have to put in a decent amount of work at some point in your life. Um, and you kind of just need to decide at which point that will be. Um, for software engineering, I think it's like the major itself is very difficult. And obviously you're getting adjusted to college and all these other things. But when you get into software engineering and you make it through those four years, then your work-life balance and the money you're getting paid as a result and the access you have to the most innovative things that are happening around the world, where you can then you know, get into starting your own company or that sort of thing and having the time to be able to do that because you're only working a certain amount of hours per week, I think is really beneficial. So for me, I've always recommend that to everybody even for myself, I always liked math and science, but computer science didn't come that easy to me. So, you know, the four years of college were certainly a grind, but I think since then it's just paid off in terms of being, um, you know, my work-life balance and the things I have access to now are, are pretty great. So it's definitely up there on my list of um, top recommended things. I think also people always, you know, assume you have to major in exactly what you're passionate about. Um, or major in something that has like a proven track record of success. I think computer science would be maybe more along the lines of the proven track record um, because, you know, the classic one used to be lawyer or doctor, uh, but you can kind of get to that same level of success in terms of at least financially as a lawyer or a doctor, but with only undergrad experience and not having to go to several years of grad school or do residency or that sort of thing. So that's why I highly recommend it um, to anybody. And even if you're not passionate about it, it will give you the freedom financially um, and time-wise to pursue whatever that passion is. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty passionate about computer science and I've always liked it. But even if I wasn't, I think I would still choose it because if I'm able to retire early or even just pick up a side hobby that I'm really passionate about and do that during the week or on the weekends when I have time, I think that it opens up the doors for a lot of things there as well. Sure. Yeah. I think the time thing is really important. I mean, uh, we actually talk a lot about this and I'm working in a job that's maybe a little bit more intensive time-wise. And I, I'm jealous of the fact that you have the time to, to go pursue other hobbies. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so that's definitely nice. And I think the other thing is with software engineering, you kind of have the ability to potentially combine your hobbies with the skills that you're developing through software engineering in the future. Would you agree with that? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think we'll probably continue to talk about this throughout the conversation, but um, I think every tech company is going to, I mean, every company is eventually going to be a tech company. 
Um, so it's like, if you're working as a software engineer, just the potential for things you could work on is pretty insane. I mean, there'd be times when you're in New York or some city and you're asking someone what they work on, what they work on and they're a software engineer, but they could literally be working on, you know, Tesla, or they could be working at like a dog walking app. There's so such a range of things you could be working on because software is going to be prevalent in everything. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think it's definitely true that if I was extremely passionate about cars, which I kind of am. Um, then I could, you know, start working at Tesla or if I was extremely passionate about like social media platforms and um, good photography, I could start working at like Adobe or Instagram or something like that. So I think there's always an option um, with, I mean, business and finance alike, um, but also computer science where it's going to be present in every single thing, regardless of the industry, regardless of the focus of the company. So definitely always a way to combine the two. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and the other part of that that you touched on is is that demand curve. I think, I think we both agree that technology is going to become more and more integrated in businesses and in life in general in the future. Mm-hmm. And so if you just think about that from a basic supply and demand perspective, there's going to be a lot of demand in the future. If you're part of that supply, which right now is very limited and could potentially still be limited if people continue to choose other majors other than technology-oriented ones, then you're in a really good position and, and positioned well to make a lot of money out of college. So do you think you have a lot of visibility at a big company into what you guys are doing more holistically? I know from other people I've talked to who work at big companies, they kind of say that's one of the, the cons at times is that they are in you know a very specific group and, and they can't see the bigger picture all the time. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you think about that at Oracle and, and maybe more generally if you have some other experiences to pull from. Definitely. Um, so I would say the... I would say the default is definitely what you said about someone else you were talking to that you don't have a lot of visibility. Obviously at a startup or a small business, you can see across everything very easily because you're hearing about everything about the business in each quarterly report. If we did that about Oracle, it would probably be a several like week you know meeting because there's just too many d- different revenue streams and teams. Um, but I think it is always about what you make of it. And so for me, the way I've gotten a lot of that insight is by trying to network with different people uh, in different sides of the business. And um, that's really helped out a lot because, you know, normally you wouldn't be able to really find out much, but if you connect with a product manager on, you know, another side of the team, a salesperson on this side of the team, a software engineer in another org, um, you're able to get a lot more of that perspective. And then, of course, like I said, we always have the all hands meetings and the quarterly reports and things like that. And a lot of people don't really pay much attention to those, but I try to, you know, listen in and understand as much as I can to just gain more context for what we're doing because you really never know um, when you'll see something that does strike that balance between something you're passionate about and, and and also being helping you be successful. So I always try to keep my eyes out for that and see if there's anything that really interests me or something that could have a synergy with something I'm working on either at the company or on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and even looking at like, sometimes you can even get access to upcoming projects that are going to be launched by Oracle. And if you're really interested in that and you, you know, talk to the right people about it, maybe they could get you on that project. So um, yeah, that's kind of how I've done it. I think to just to summarize that it's definitely what you make of it in a big company, it's hard to get the visibility, but if you start networking, it's a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Awesome. What are some of the key trends that you're looking at in, in technology? And uh, how have these trends shaped the way that you either 
uh, go about external business and, and try to start new businesses or the way that you invest? Right. So for me, I mean, people have been talking about data, big data for a long time. Um, I don't think there's any reason to change it. I think it's still at the forefront of my mind whenever I think about different macro trends, um, specifically kind of the idea like, you know, data right now, I believe, is in like the zeta bytes. I think it's around 80 zeta bytes, which is um, 10 to the 21st, right? And by 2025, it's going to be around double that. So when I think about how much more data there's going to be out there between now and 2025, it's like, where is that data going to be stored? How is it going to be processed? What's like going to be the primary forms in which people consume it? And then how it will be utilized? So when I think about all those kinds of things, I start with you know, storage. So that's going to be mostly cloud storage. So I'm focused on companies in that space, like all the cloud companies, you know, Oracle, Amazon, Google, um, even IBM. When I think about how it will be processed, that's obviously going to draw my attention to AI. Like there's a lot of companies out there, like, you know, even Salesforce, um, obviously Google has a lot of AI things. Microsoft is launching some cloud AI, um, like Lambda functions and things like that, that are managed AI functions that you can just use and plug and play. So I kind of pay attention to companies like that because there's a lot of data coming in. And if you don't have AI and other ways of kind of condensing all this data into true actionable insights, then you're not really going to be able to do much with it and it's just going to overcrowd you. Um, when I think about how it's going to be utilized, that's kind of like um, either from a personal perspective, like, you know, me and you um, tracking our fitness stuff and tracking what we eat and things like that. People are going to have more and more data about them personally, how they're spending their time, money, et cetera. Um, so I think about, you know, companies like even like Truebill, are some of these microfinance companies, um, like I guess TurboTax and that whole suite of tools is another one. Um, and then on the business side, I think about kind of the same cloud computing companies. How are they going to allow businesses to store all this data um, and then actually do things with it? So that's what one thing Oracle is working on a lot too, is like, if you're already storing all of our data, your data on our cloud, we're also going to allow you to manipulate that data, analyze it and do that with, you know, the touch of a few buttons rather than having to go in depth and have an expert on your team that can do that. Mm -hmm. um, and then lastly, when I think about prevalence of like what, how are people going to be consuming data the most? I, my attention is definitely drawn to things like the metaverse, augmented reality, virtual reality. Um, there's so much space there for people to just add another layer of context to reality. That's how, that's how I think about those things. Like when I'm walking into a, you know, a conference and I'm trying to network with everyone there, I could spend a lot of my time just talking to someone and realizing there's not much that we have in common and we wouldn't really be able to benefit each other. Or I could have like an AR business card or glasses on or something that would, you know, show me that that person already works at this company and has these mutual connections before I even walk up to them, things like that. Um, and things like you're in the grocery store and you can see from far away that they're sold out of one thing. So you want to grab something else to replace that before you even get over there. There's a lot of ways to add context to different parts of our lives through that. So that's kind of what I think about for, you know, how data will be um, presented to us. And any company in that space would be, of course, like Meta, but there will be a lot of other companies in the space that I'm sure will become more prevalent as time goes on. When, when you think about AR and VR, what mm -hmm. do you think the, the turning point will be when we really start to adopt 
those products and, and services in our lives? Yeah, I think it'll be country by country, of course. In the U.S., I really think it'll be the next three. I think in the next three years, you'll see two to two to three years, you'll see people actively using like every single day people will wake up and use an augmented reality or virtual reality resource. Right now, it's a bit gimmicky and people aren't able to derive too much actual value from it. But at the point at which you know, it, it really starts affecting businesses and businesses have true use cases for it. I think that's when you'll see um, kind of a trickle down system of it also applying to the average consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, because right now, a lot of these things are costly, the headsets, the technology, the, the processing power. But as businesses start to use them, they'll be able to set up all the infrastructure needed for then customer, the average customer to start using them, the prices will start to come down. So for me, I think that's looking, you're looking at like a three-year um, horizon in terms of people every single day, the average consumer using one to two things that are AR or VR. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I think I, uh, I saw an article somewhere talking about um, several analysts who study this space think it's when Apple is going to come into the market, mm-hmm. which kind of aligns well with what you're talking about. But I found that super interesting because, you know, Apple is is what we all use for our phone. It's uh, mm-hmm. a very recognizable brand. It's a very premium brand. If they create glasses or really start to get into the VR and AR world more, I, I can tell you, at least for me, I'm going to be interested in, and I'm going to take a look as opposed to, uh, you know, unfortunately, like the Snap glasses. Snap doesn't have that same consumer product brand and is not as recognizable with consumer technology as, as a company like Apple is. So um, I, I thought that was super interesting to hear. Um, do you think it's going to start out with, with glasses? Do you think it's going to start off on our phones and and go into glasses? I guess we already have some phone technology that, that does that. Do you think it's going to become kind of Oculus type? What what do you, what do you think the adoption curve is going to look like? That's a great question. Yeah. I, I know I'm definitely excited as well. Um, and I think one thing I didn't even mention when it talks, when we talk about macro trends is like the, I just the idea of a great customer experience. I think everything is going to start to be based on what that customer experience is like making a product that's very sticky. Uh, that's what a lot of like the top incubators talk about, like something, a product that just keeps you coming back. And Apple is probably the best in the business at doing that. So I could see that when they adopt it, that's when everyone follows suit. Um, so I definitely could see that happening. I think, for them, glasses makes a lot of sense um, because I've worked on a couple of augmented reality projects here and there. And glasses really just changes the game because you don't want to have to be looking through your phone to use an augmented reality experience. You want it to just be right there and not be very hands-free and be able to interact with it. So glasses and headsets are pretty important to that vision at the moment. Um, and I definitely see like it's hard to imagine people walking down the street wearing them right now, but I think as soon as Apple launches it, just like the AirPods, it's kind of going to just take over because AirPods, like no one really, there was Bluetooth headphones before AirPods, but not many people were using them. Once AirPods came out, it was just like the game pretty much changed. Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a really good point. Um, you mentioned some side projects and I, and I know that you're an aspiring entrepreneur and we often talk about entrepreneurship. Can you dive into any of the projects you might be working on or, or maybe connect some of those key themes that we just talked about to, to how you think about entrepreneurship more generally? Definitely. Um, so 
One that I didn't even talk about in terms of a macro theme is definitely drones. So one of the top projects I've been working on for the longest time um, is actually a drone delivery company um, out of the DC area. We, this weekend, um, just launched delivery from some local Trader Joe's. So that's pretty big development. Um, that'll be kind of our first partnership there. So I'm really excited about that. Um, in terms of the other macro trend of just a sticky UX, a sticky user experience, um, and, and just overall product, that's one thing that I'm most passionate about because working on the cloud industry, I get to see that a lot of these companies across the board are going to start relying fully on a mix of different clouds. Um, they might use multiple clouds. That's why there's a like hybrid or multi-cloud um, idea out there. And that's essentially going to mean, not, not fully, but essentially it's going to mean that a lot of companies are operating on almost the exact same backend architecture and infrastructure, um, which means that what's going to really differentiate those companies at that point? It's going to be what the front end, what the user is seeing and interacting directly with. So one of my most passionate projects right now is um, kind of a user testing and research platform where I'm looking to get users um, paid for interacting with uh, companies' experiences and companies will be able to post almost like a social media platform, um, their designs at any stage in their process and be able to um, you know, launch those and have users interact with them and get instantaneous feedback. There will also be, like I said, AI is going to be huge on how data is processed. Right now, a lot of user research, research and testing platforms require a lot of manual um, data entry, like taking a video of yourself using a website. I want all that stuff to be streamlined and automated in my platform. Um, and I'm really excited about um, launching that in 2022. Very interesting. I know that that's earlier stage, so I don't want to dive too deep into it and, and give too much away, <laughs> but I'm certainly excited to see that idea to con continue to develop. On that note, when you have an idea, what are the next steps that you take to begin to turn that idea into an early stage company? Because I know, you know, some people think the idea is everything. And I think the idea is very important, but I'm of the opinion that the idea is 5%. Execution is the other 95, if not more. Yeah, I really like that. And I couldn't say it better. I get a lot of the content I think about when it comes to turning an idea into an actual company uh, from Andreessen Horwitz. Uh, they have really excellent content on the web about that. And um one of the things they talk about is that first-time founders focus on the product. Second-time founders, meaning founders that had a successful exit already, or or had a maybe did it just crashed and burned, but they're learning from those mistakes. Focus on distribution, which is kind of exactly what you were saying: execution, distribution, pretty much the same thing. And I think that's mostly what I'm focused on, and that boils down to a couple of things, of course, which is like you still have to come up with an initial product um, and have a team a really good team that can execute upon that. Obviously, it also helps to have good sales channels, like how are you going to get the product into um, a customer's hands? Um, and then, of course, funding is a, like, and what at what stage to start pursuing funding is also important. So for me, the number one word is definitely distribution. Um, but then I think about what are the steps to getting that distribution? And that's when I get into the things I mentioned, like team, product, um, sales channels. Got it. And, and when you say distribution, are you talking about like customer acquisition? Basically, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So getting customers onboarded to the platform or getting the product in their hands, just figuring out exactly how you're going to do that because you're always going to be iterating on the product. 
but distribution needs to be in place so that you can get that product into their hands. If you spend so much time focusing on just making this perfect product, like you said, it's that's really about 5%. I would say maybe a little more because I'm, I'm very product-oriented. I love making good products. But I've been telling myself more so than ever to not focus too much on that, just have a good initial idea and have some idea of how I could reach product market fit, but not, ha- not expecting that out of the gate and just focusing on how am I going to get people wanting to use this and actively using it every day and make sure that it's sticky, that they're going to keep using it. Mm. Yeah, no, and to clarify, I think product is extremely important too. Um, I, you know, the idea of the product is, is what I was saying was 5%. Mm-hmm. I think creating the product is, is also extremely important, but I would agree with you that distribution or, or customer acquisition and, and getting people onto your platform or to use your product is, you know, that's, that's how you create a business. That's how you turn a, an idea or a product into something that's, you know, sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's, uh, that's very interesting. What, what are some of the lessons you've learned from your time working on new ventures? Maybe some of the things that uh, maybe you failed at in the past that you want to do better now, or some of the things that you're like, you know what, I hit that right on the head. And if I were to go back and make another company, I would do it in the exact same way. Right. I would say it's definitely been more lessons at this point than um, things that I feel like I would do exactly the same way. I think um, distribution, of course, like I've said it four times now, but that's definitely number one that I'm always focusing on now because you can spend, people spend a lot of time just sitting there thinking about the problem, I mean, the problem and the solution and that sort of thing and the product. So I think I focus on that more than anything now. Um, but a big piece of that before you can really get to even distribution is just thinking about the idea as well in terms of a lot of people think about the solution and then they do this thing called solution in search of a problem which really you always need to do the opposite where you think really deeply about the problem, evaluate it and decide if your solution is really the right one for that problem. Because you might come to the conclusion if you really evaluate it deeply that it's not. And in that case, but that problem still exists. So then you just kind of think of another solution to that problem. If you do the opposite, you're, you've lost that solution and now you don't have a problem to focus on. So I really like the idea of focusing extremely deep in on the problem um, and then trying to find that solution and being able to critique that solution, however, in order to figure out if that's the right one for the problem. And that comes with a lot of market research, talking to users, getting out there and getting into their hands. So I like to think of those as kind of a one-two punch in terms of distribution and thinking about the problem. Um, and then the last one I would probably say would be, um, actually, I'd, I'd probably have two more, which would be, again, mention sticky products. Like, why would a user use this every day? How can this be part of their daily or weekly habits? Um, are they going to be, are they going to tell their friends about this? Is it going to come up in conversation? That's what I think about a lot when I think about a good product. Um, and a lot of times it comes down to the user experience, but it also comes down to, is it actually solving a problem for them? Because if it's not, then they're not going to be using it every day or every week because they don't have that problem. So why would they use it at all? Um, and then the last one is just how important the team is. A lot of people will, you know, just find a team, however, or they'll just put a team together without thinking too much about it. Um, I think a lot of people put a team together based on skill levels, but a big part of entrepreneurship is actually learning as you go. You're not expected to be able to know everything and you're never going to be able to put together a great team in your first run out there as an entrepreneur where everybody's strengths and weaknesses magically balance each other out. You're going to need to be learning how to do new things getting up to par on how to do certain things and then dropping that and moving to the next thing because you're going to be putting out a bunch of fires and trying to get things off the ground. So 
I think when you focus on the team, you got to focus on people who are capable, people that you have a good balance with, not that you get, not with, not where you're the exact same person, but where you kind of complement each other. And then people that you actually like working with and who will keep you invested in the vision and you'll keep them invested in the vision. Because ultimately, like I said, you're solving a problem. There's going to be so many iterations on that ups and downs, and you need to be a real team and be able to go through all those things together. So that's what I focus on um, when it comes to a new venture. And um, yeah, I think that's kind of what what's really guided me through all these couple of uh, things I'm going through right now. Got it. Got it. That's, that's great information right there on the, uh, the customer part and, and figuring out new customers. I wanted to put out a book recommendation to the, to the listeners There's a book called contagious um, by Wharton professor of marketing, where he talks about some of the ways that you can make your product viral or, or get more people on it. And there's a, uh, there's an acronym he uses. It's called STEPS, mm-hmm. um, S being social currency, T being triggers, E being emotion, P public, the other P practical value, and then the S is stories. And, and his thought process is if you can find a way to market your product so that you have each of these individual components in your marketing strategy, or maybe even in one piece of content, if you can do that, it makes it that much more effective and boosts word of mouth and gets people talking and, and gets the product buzzy and, and sticky. Hmm. I like that. Yeah, I would definitely plug Power of Habit too, because they have a similar thing where they go through how companies like Target and Starbucks have you know, made their products in a way that it, it deals with people's habits and that they set off certain cues or they analyze certain cues that will trigger people to use their products or come to their store. And then, you know, people feel rewarded for that. So it, it goes to that whole habit life cycle, I guess, and deals with how to use that most effectively. So I like yeah. that. No, that's, that's interesting. That, that kind of plays into the S and T of the contagious part, the triggers. Mm-hmm. Uh, what he's talking about there is, you know, everyday activities that you or I might do yeah. that would cause us to bring up this new product. So, mm-hmm. you know, if it's like a, a toilet paper brand, marketing it in a way where, you know, when we're doing something, we're like, oh, I just remembered that toilet paper that I, that I use or an ad that I saw for it. So I'm going to tell Cam about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the social currency part kind of goes into that as well. Talking about toilet paper might not be the most attractive thing to talk about, might not have as much social currency, but maybe if you're talking about a new workout program or something, mm-hmm. you're also giving yourself some social currency by showing, hey, I work out, I know about this stuff and, and, and I'm informed. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, the example in, in one of the books was actually from Procter & Gamble when they were coming up with the idea of Febreze. And at first they were just marking Febreze because they actually, you know, scientifically it actually removes odor and they have a great formula for how it worked. But then when they were thinking about marketing, they were failing completely at first because they were just saying, oh, this will remove the odor from people's room and you can do that for yourself. But a lot of people, when they have odors, like they went to this lady who had seven cats so her house smelled terrible. And, but she didn't ever notice because smells are something you become accustomed to. So she would have never used that for herself because she didn't see a problem there. Um, so that was exactly where they were trying to take this solution and put it into a problem. But then they started realizing that what people do, um, and they went, the most time at which they clean is actually when other people are coming over. So they started implementing it as a, as part of the habit loop where uh, the cue is someone having company over and the habit is them cleaning, but then they inserted Febreze into that habit loop in terms of 
you can't really feel like your room is fully clean for company until you spray a little Febreze in there, right? Mm -hmm. So now people use it universally for everything, but that was how it started out in terms of their marketing scheme. And it was pretty amazing to see the psychology behind how even a product like a Febreze um, could be so impactful like that. And it's funny that we talked about Febreze and toilet paper in the same, <laughs> the same <laughs> habit loop, but it just shows those are things that people use like all the time, so. No, absolutely. And I think this all kind of goes back into that customer experience part in a way too. Uh, you need to find a way where you can communicate that your brand is somehow related to what they do on a day-to-day basis and make it convenient for them to remember your product and, and therefore kind of starting that customer experience process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so, so Cam, I want to shift gears a little bit and, and talk more about life in general and your approach to life particularly on the balance of time and money that you allocate to different elements of your life and to different points in time and in, in your life more generally. Um, can you discuss your approach to when you determine how you allocate your resources in order to satisfy your current self versus your future self? Okay. Always down to talk about life. Uh, never get enough <laughs> time talking about life, but I, I think, um, yeah, the concept that we're talking about is really interesting. Um, and so, yeah, for everyone out there, the way that I think about how I spend my time and resources is really like I break it down between is it benefiting future me or is it benefiting current me? And the balance that I try to go for, I don't achieve it every single day, of course, is um, 20% of my time being to benefit current me and then 80% of my time being spent to benefit future. And so I guess what that means is when you think about what's benefiting current you, it's like if someone was to come up to you today and say, you don't have to think about anything else. There's no worries for the future. What do you actually want to do right at this moment? And if that, whatever your answer is, that's something that's only really most of the time going to benefit current you. And it's, it's actually really difficult to do that because I think society has ingrained in a lot of us that the things that we want to do are the things that will benefit our future, which is perfectly great. And it's good to think that way. Um, But I think it's also important to get some enjoyment out of life in the present um, and not always think about just future you because present you is also still human, still wants to enjoy life. And you want to have good experiences throughout your life, not just push all of your happiness um, to the end of it because you just don't know what that future is going to be like. So I try to find that balance, which I think is a good one, but everyone's going to have their own different balances. I'd definitely love to hear about yours, Max. Um, But the way I try to do that is kind of by setting my calendar um, pretty much like, because you can't think about 20 years down the line. So I pretty much just try to go week to week. What am I going to be doing? Um, Does the balance look like it's my 80 to 20% balance? and, and, you know, sometimes it is easier. Like I said, it's sometimes it's easier than you think because sometimes the time I take for me is time to go play basketball, time to go to the gym, um, time to work on my side projects. But when you really think about that, it's um, those are actually benefiting future me as well. So it's kind of easier than you think for most people to do both at the same time, which is why it's almost kind of hard to find that 20% sometimes. And I think it's important to find that 20% whenever you can. And in fact, I was just talking to... Um, a mental coach actually read before this about this very concept that she posed the question, do you think you could ever get to a hundred percent where you feel like you're focused on present you? Um, and I argued, well, you know, I didn't argue, but I said, you know, I would never do that because I care too much about my future and my family. 
And I, you know, hope that I would have a long enough life that I would get to enjoy all those benefits that I've worked hard for in the current part of my life. But I mean, if someone was to ask what exactly I want to do today, part of it would probably be working on a company that could have a very innovative product that could actually change the world, working on a nonprofit that could change the lives of people in my community, like where I grew up or the local community here. Um, and doing, and then maybe playing around of golf, maybe working out, things like that. And those would all be things that I would hundred percent feel like this is to benefit present me, but those things actually do benefit, not just future me, but future families, my, like my own and others. So I think there are ways in life. If you take the time earlier in life to set up these structures for yourself, you can kind of achieve a hundred percent of it benefiting present you, but it's still also benefiting future you. So I've been thinking a lot that, about the concept, definitely still toying with the idea, but I think my biggest goal for the next couple of years is to set up a situation where I am able to achieve that hundred percent that benefits both. Yeah. And yes. Yeah, so Max, I'll throw it back to you. What, um, what's your balance like right now? And how do you feel about kind of the, some of the stuff I was saying? Yeah, no, th this one's an interesting one that I'm still toying with as well. I think my allocation right now is probably 90% future me, 10% current me. Mm -hmm. um, which primarily is driven by the job that I work in. Right now I'm doing investment banking. Uh, a lot of hours go into that. And I spend a lot of my free time either, you know, working out, which like you said, can be put into two buckets. It could be for your future self or for your current self. For me, it's a little bit of both. Um, mm -hmm. But then spending my other time working on side projects or trying to develop different uh, areas of my life that I think will benefit me in the future. And and, uh, you know, I think sometimes I, I think about this and I think about my balance and, and, and it's one of the points I'm at right now is, is this the right allocation? Is 90-10 correct? Should I go down to 80-20? Should I maybe go 100% present me? And it's a tough one. You know, I, I don't really fully know the answer to it. And I think it's just interesting to talk about it and, and have our listeners think about it a little bit. Um, because, you know, I've heard somebody talk to me who spends a lot of her time on her current self with a little bit of allocation to what she wants her future self to look like. And, and her big thing is, look, if, if you were to die tomorrow, mm -hmm. um, would you, would you be okay with, with like the fact that you're focusing so much of your time on your future self, not really knowing how long your future self will be there for mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of tricky. It's, it's a hard yeah. one to think about, but it is real. You know, we, we never really know. Um, and, and so that's always been interesting to me. And then another point she had her, mom works with hospice patients. Mm -hmm. And she says that those people, when they're nearing the end of their life, all they want to do is, is just spend time with their family and, and enjoy the, the loved ones around them, which I could think you could probably argue would fit into that current self mm -hmm. um, perspective. So it, it's something that you know I still struggle with in terms of my allocation right now, because I'm young and because I'm fingers crossed thinking I'm going to live a long, healthy life. I'm still going to continue to allocate a lot of my time towards that future self, but it is something that I, I consistently draw back to and, and think about that allocation and think about how I might want to change that going forward. Definitely. Yeah. What, what do you think is like a, like one thing that you could do that would just benefit present you? Cause for me, I was actually having trouble thinking about it because there's a lot of times where you could put in both buckets, like even going out and hanging with friends, like grabbing a drink with friends is like, those might be friends that are lifelong friends. So that's actually going to benefit future you as well. So I feel like things like watching a movie or like watching a show or scrolling social media might be things that are just giving you like a short term, like do dopamine boost. But 
Not necessarily, but probably won't benefit you in the future at all. But I was actually having trouble compiling a list of things I feel like just benefit doesn't mean. That that is hard because it's very subjective. You could even argue that watching a movie tonight would give you something to talk about for two weeks, you know, would would give you like a really cool topic that you can bring up. So Mm. it's a tricky one for me when I think about that. I, I think about benefiting future me as things that maybe... I don't love to do. Maybe it's like working really long hours on some random project for work that's Mm -hmm. given me a lot of knowledge, but maybe I'm not in love with the product or the company that we're working with. Um, But I know that, you know, this knowledge is going to help me out. It's going to help me develop my career, things like that. Mm -hmm. Same thing with, um, you know, if if I'm uh, working on a side project and it's not making any money right now, but it's something that I want to develop going forward and something that I might feel you know, passionate about in in the future. Those are things that I think about going into that future bucket. Current me, I would say I do classify like going out with friends as something that would benefit current me, even though you're right, it is developing relationships that will help you in the future. I do think it's kind of like, you know, if you were to like, is there, are there better ways that you could allocate that time to help future you? Then I think that that would mean it's, helping current you, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think the way I think about if it is it benefiting future me is like, or not is like, I think what I said at the very beginning of the conversation, which is like, if someone asks you like, no worries about anything, like blank slate, like, what do you want to do right this second that would make you happy? That's something that's like present you. But I feel like a lot of times, naturally, both of our answers and a lot of our friends, there'd be answers that would also benefit like future us. So mm-hmm. I guess a round of golf doesn't necessarily benefit future me. So that's a lot of times that would be my answer. So I feel like that's going to be in the 20% bucket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, just playing devil's advocate, you know, you're getting better at golf. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm saying. It's really easy to put stuff in the future bucket, but then in the present bucket, you're like, but hold on like that. I think it's just because when you're very future oriented, it's like, it's almost hard to even just focus on the present. And that's why I try to think about that a little more because focusing truly on just the present you is almost impossible sometimes. Mm. Yeah, I know for sure. I, you know, I think it's about what kind of gives you the happiest life, right? Mm. If, if you're doing a bunch of things now that are making you super happy, but you know that it's turning you into a de- degenerate in the long run, you know, that's, that's not the right balance for yourself. Right. If you're finding that you're happy right now, maybe you could be happier, but you really are convicted that you're putting enough time in so that your future self is going to be extremely happy, then maybe that's the right balance for yourself. I think it's it's a hard one to answer for anybody, but it's a really cool conversation to have and, and to, to get people thinking about. Um, so the last thing I wanted to talk about is, is habits. I think habits are very important and influence how people's lives go over time. It'd be great to hear about some of your habits um, that you implement to keep yourself excelling in life and maybe one or two unique or even unusual habits that you might implement that really help you out. Hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to think about what the unique ones would be. I'll start with um, calendar. So a lot of people make a calendar, of course, that's not a unique habit. I think it's a really good one, though. Um, because for me, why a calendar is so important is because if I'm always focused on the future and the big picture. So if I don't make a calendar and I don't know for an absolute fact that the way I'm going to spend my time that day or that week is going to be in my best interest, reaching that 80 to 20% balance, 
then I might start thinking about how to plan out those future things rather than being truly engaged on what I'm doing at the moment. Um, and then I also think, so I think the shorter you can focus, time frame you can focus on is the, is the better, is the, like the better it'll be for you. Um, I know people who even say like they break their day down into quarters. And then you can think of it like a basketball game where if you didn't do well in one quarter, you bounce back the next quarter, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think I've gotten to that point yet. So for me, I think of it as a week, like every week is kind of a fresh start. So I make my calendar at the beginning of the week and try to follow it as strictly as I can. Obviously, there'll be times when I, you know, move things around or have to reschedule stuff, et cetera. But that's kind of what I do. So each week is a new week. Um, and my habit is to make that calendar and then follow it for the whole time. Um, I'd say when I'm thinking about more unique habits, I don't know if other people do this, but like if it's difficult for you to get up in the morning or you want to start work, but you're like kind of in that weird zone where you haven't yet started. I just think sometimes where I'm trying to force myself to do something where I just count down from three to one. And then as soon as I do that, I actually follow it. So like if I'm in bed, my alarm just went off, but I'm still kind of tired. I'm not getting up. I just say like, all right, I'm going to count three, two, one, and then I'll get up and I'll go do whatever I was going to do. So that's kind of a habit I've set for myself and it actually works really, really well. Um, and I've never, I don't think I've ever not followed when I did that three, two, one, which is why it's a habit. Because if you get into that loop of like doing three, two, one, then you don't do it and then you don't do it again, then it could easily start to become not a habit. So I try to take my habits very seriously. Um, another one I do is, I think for a lot of people, just the way the brain works subconsciously, your brain is always piecing things together. And like, I have a lot of faith in myself and other people out there. And I don't think people think enough or have enough faith in themselves about what their brain is possible of doing. Um, so for me, I feel like my brain is very problem solving oriented and it pieces a lot of things together. And sometimes I'll be, I'll step away from a project. And when I come back, I already have it solved. And I know a lot of people out there probably have the same experience. So for me, if I'm trying to think of a new idea or a new business or just a problem that I want to solve, how do I go about doing that? I can't always be right there looking at it and just waiting for my brain to solve the problem. But if the more content, good content and productive content I feed my brain, the more you're giving your brain the ability to put those different pieces together because you're giving it more resources to do things with. So mm. one of my other habits is just trying to consume more good content in a day than bad content in terms of like, I mean, obviously all content is, is interesting and there should be recognition for anybody who creates content because it's not very easy. But I guess I'm talking about like, I, my one example of bad content, which I actually love is like memes. Whereas good content would be like reading a Medium article on like real estate investing or just investing in general or how to launch a business, how to pitch to a VC, things like that. And so, yeah. or even like a tech, a lot of tech oriented stuff too. So mm -hmm. it's like, if I keep feeding my brain like content like that, then my brain is going to slowly be piecing things together. And I might at the end of the day, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and just have a new idea because my brain was piecing things together that whole day. And I just wake up with an idea. If I was just looking at memes and YouTube videos that whole day, I might my brain, I might wake up in the middle of the night and my brain is pieced together like a joke or something like that. So mm -hmm. big different in the value of the two. So one of my habits is just try to feed my brain in a day more good content, which I've, obviously people can classify those in whatever way they want. But for me, it's like more business tech oriented content than not in a day. Right. No, that's that's a huge thing right there. And, and I try to do the same thing as well. Listening to good podcasts, um, reading good articles. 
putting myself in the right situations with people who are talking about things that are going to benefit me. Yeah. Uh, another one that my friend actually introduced me to is music. Uh, I have always loved music, but I've never thought of it as something that's going to, you know, turn into a, a positive habit or something that's reinforcing a good quality in me. But my buddy actually listens to uh, like old Jay-Z um, and other kind of up and coming artists when they were up and coming mm-hmm. so that he gets that hungry mentality into him and uses that music to drive him and motivate him. And I thought that was super interesting. And, and he's got me on an old school Jay-Z kick right now. So that, that was a, that was a cool one when I heard him talking about that. Nice. Yeah. I like that. Um, one other habit I, I wanted to, to touch on that it's a new one for me, mm-hmm. uh, just putting it out there to the listeners. I found myself getting up in the morning or maybe before I went to sleep at night, checking my phone and watching like, you know, a quick YouTube video or scrolling Instagram or social media for a little while and it started to bother me. I realized it wasn't good for my health um, and there was no benefit that I was gaining out of it. So I've started to turn my phone on black and white uh, mm-hmm. before I go to sleep and leave it on until at least around 1030 the next day. And what this does is, you know, your phone's less stimulating. There's no color coming from your phone. You go onto the accessibility settings, and I believe it's color filters, and you can turn your phone black and white. Mm-hmm. And it, it just totally stops me from looking at my phone at night. And if I look at it in the morning, it's just to turn my alarm off or maybe to respond to a text that I need to respond to. Um, so, so that one's just a little food for thought for the crowd. Yeah, I like that one. I think I saw um, someone, yeah, mention that before too. Like, I, I haven't tried it yet, but I'm actually really curious because it, it's like the idea that Apple is such a good, like, captivating company. They try to make all these colors and apps put millions and millions of dollars in market research to make these colors attractive and draw your attention. So if you just like cut that off, and then it's like it makes it a lot easier for you not to fall into those same habit. So I like that. Right. And I think it goes back to like human nature. When, when we see a, a mm. bright color, our minds probably are triggered to think food mm. or, you know, a berry or a vegetable that we can eat mm. as if we're like uh, barbarians or, or <laughs> like, like we were back in the day. So, right. you know, it, it's still within us to a degree and, and trying to, to turn that off uh, from your phone is, is something that can really help you detox a little bit. Um, Kim, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. I know I learned a lot and hopefully our listeners learned a lot as well. As a final note, you talked a little bit about um, content that you take in. Are there any books or podcasts or other resources that that you would recommend to the listeners? Um, Definitely. So podcasts I listen to probably the most is either A16Z or Robinhood Snacks. Those are really solid. Um, Robinhood Snacks just gives you quick info. A16Z helps you think about how are entrepreneurs solving problems out there. It could be very motivational and insightful for people who are looking to get into that space. Um, I like David Goggins' content. Always really good about how he's kind of thinking of, you know, let your mind control your body, not kind of the other way around. Um, Power of Habit, which we mentioned earlier, great book. Uh, Futility Closet is a great podcast. They do like mind puzzles and they also talk about events in history that were really interesting Um, because I think it's important. The last one I'll mention though, before I get into what I'm going to say about this is the last thing I would definitely mention is fictional series. Um, Like don't always just be reading business books or investing books or anything like that. Think about like Harry Potter, Artemis Fowl, Percy Jackson, uh, I think you said you read Tracy Jackson before, right? And and 
I think it's really important. Like one of the most underrated um, qualities to have is being truly creative. I don't really feel like, I mean, maybe I haven't given people enough credit, but I don't feel like I've met a lot of creative people out there, even working across so many different industries and meeting lots of different people. Creativity is very underrated because in our society, we don't assign as much value to it as other things, like being able to just hit the books for, you know, so many hours a day. So I think it's really good to stay creative, always kind of always be a little bit of a kid at heart and have your creative mind always working. So I like to do different like mind puzzles, read fictional books and things like that to balance out all the other content I'm feeding in so that I still have a little bit of that creative energy at all times. But yeah, thanks for having so much for having me on the show. And it was really good to be here. Of course, Kim. It's good talking to you. I'll see you.